0: You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Abraham. And this is Shane. So this is Why We Do What We Do. Your favorite consumable psychology podcast. Okay, I'm going to ask you, Shane, and our listener, to do a thought experiment with me, okay? I'm into it. Okay, thank you. So... If you're not driving, but are otherwise in a safe place to do so, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. Okay? Got it. I can confirm Shane's eyes are closed. (laughs) Now, I want you to try and imagine you're standing at the top of a building that's over 15 stories off the ground. You can sort of lean over the edge and see the straight drop to the ground that is over 150 feet below you. You might notice that the trees, the cars, and the people look tiny as they crawl along the ground below. In contrast, you can feel the height and the kind of breeze that can only be found at such a profoundly isolated elevation. So, in this moment, what do you feel?
1: Man, I, uh, to me, that's very stressful. Is it? Yeah. Like being on the edge of like a tall building with no safety guards yeah. and having that, it's pretty intense, but I'm curious about it too. I'm interested and I'm like, I want to see what happens next.
0: Yeah. I think it's common to experience some amount of fear or curiosity or wonder or some combination of those things. And so many people experience this feeling of curiosity, this sort of call or this beckoning if you will to jump or fall when they are at tremendous heights and it's not that they actually want to jump a matter of fact specifically they don't want to jump and very very few people actually do but this is an experience that's surprisingly common to quite a wide variety of people and as I mentioned it's like a quote-unquote beckoning, sort of like this invisible lure that seems to be trying to pull you toward your fate, but you know it's just all in your head and that you don't actually want to follow through with it. Shane, have you experienced that sort of phenomenon before?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I've actively observed it, um, or that I have uh, been as aware of it as I kind of what we're going to discuss here. But I know that I've been on the top of a building and been like, I wonder what it would be like to fall from here. Yeah, I know that I've had that experience because I've had that thought more than once.
0: Okay, yeah, that is exactly exactly what I'm talking about. Now, before we discuss this in depth even further, I want to point out that if you feel that you are struggling with self-destructive thoughts to the point that you might act on them or are concerned about it, you may want to skip this episode and please call the National Suicide Hotline, which is available 24/7 in the United States at 1-800-273-8255, and there are also groups that help with this in many if not most other countries. I'll include two more here just because I know we have a lot of listeners in those regions, which uh, one is in Ireland, which has a website for Pieta House, which is an organization dedicated to preventing self-harm and suicide, and they can be found at www.pieta.ie and I'll put a link in the show notes as well and then if you are from India another place where we actually have quite a few listeners welcome people from India (laughs) from whichever that's a giant country so I don't know I don't want to like list all the places you could be from but there is a national suicide hotline in India at I'm just going to read this exactly the way the number is presented because I've never actually tried to call an international number before but it's at plus plus nine one three three. Two four seven four four seven zero seven. Or plus nine one three three two four seven four five eight eight six. And then it gave me another one, which was two four seven four five two five five. And you can also find more about this at befriendersindia.org, befriendersindi org And again, I'll put a link to that in the show notes so that anybody who needs help with this, please use those resources, reach out to somebody and find help. However, if you are comfortable continuing with this episode, we're happy to have you. This is going to be, I think, a relatively short one, just going to be discussing this topic.
1: Yeah, I think it'll be good. So we're not actually talking about suicide or suicidal thoughts. I think that's an important designation here.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: If you are comfortable going forward, then we are going to be actually discussing the question, what is the call of the void? So that's the phenomenon that we're talking about here. And we're going to talk about kind of who experiences it, why do people experience it, and kind of give a, a, an overview of what it actually is. Because we've described the feeling and the sensation a little bit, but we're going to get more in depth with it.
0: And dig into what research does actually exist, which as we'll find out is not a ton. <laughs> very, very little. So generally speaking, let's go ahead and start to give that overview of what we're dealing with here. This phenomenon has been given a name, as Shane mentioned called l'appel du vide in french which literally translates to the call of the void and this isn't necessarily a contemporary phenomenon either and it has been given other names throughout history as well edgar Allan poe called it the imp of the perverse or at least he wrote a story called the imp of the perverse in which that was what the imp of the perverse was Freud also called it the death drive, although I also saw that he instead maybe called it a drive to return to an inanimate state of existence. And then really commonly, if you were to look in the literature to the extent that it exists, quote unquote, scientists or people who have been talking about this at length have referred to it simply as the high place phenomenon.
1: I would go see a movie called The Death Drive. (laughs)
0: That does sound like it might be interesting. Yeah,
1: like it sounds cool. And honestly, I think this is one of those interesting phenomenon that sounds really, really cool. I think that the titles really pull you in and they're really they make you interested in studying it. You're like the call of the void sounds intense, right? Death Drive sounds really intense. The High Place Phenomenon sounds like a really cool show. Yeah. You know, I think that's kind of what gets people involved in the topic or like interested in the topic. And then you find out that there's not a lot there. (laughs) (laughs) so what's cool about this though is it's not actually limited to heights so it's more talking about generally destructive or self-destructive uh thinking or pondering and includes ideations like driving your car off a road or into oncoming traffic or something more aggressively violent like stabbing or shooting oneself so that sounds pretty intense but this phenomenon covers all of that
0: yeah any of those tendencies to sort of entertain the thought of what would happen if and then followed by whatever major destructive thing that might be. And I saw one statistic that suggested that around 30% of people have this experience that was, again, based off of the study that we'll be talking about in a moment. I did see another that claimed that it was true of almost everyone, although they didn't actually give a number for this. So I would guess that they were predicting 50% or more of people having this experience. Definitely a lot of people that I have talked to have referred to having This experience. So I think that it's possible we just need a better sample to see how representative this is. But I I know that I at least would be among the group of people who's had that experience in a lot of different ways. Pretty much all the ones I listed actually is the thought of you know turning a car into oncoming traffic or driving right off a bridge if you're there, or you know, if you're standing at the top of a very high drop-off thinking about jumping, and it's we'll get to this in a moment, but it's not about actually doing the act. It's more about the thought about what it would be like. It's that sort of that pondering thing that you mentioned.
1: Yeah, it's not an issue of ideation and follow through. It's an issue of curiosity.
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I did see also that this could be combined with ideation of hurting others in a similar way. Although that seems to be at least a relatively new development and possibly I only found that in one source. So it's possible that that would actually not be the same exact thing. Most of the descriptions that I saw in trying to prepare for this really had to do only with targeting oneself as the person going to experience this. But I did see at least one source that suggested that this could be any kind of destructive thought of, you know, what if I just Punched that mirror really hard or threw this thing across the room or ran screaming out of the building, you know, whatever it might be, might fall into that category if that's where the the definition is going.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about the research about it then. Sure. Let's get into that. So in 2012, there was a pretty popular study written by Jennifer Hames that interviewed 431 undergraduate college students. That's what you do
0: when you do research. You yeah, always... that's, like, that's psychology research in a nutshell.
1: Yeah. Every school that I've ever gone to has pulled psychology students from their pool. That's their participant pool is a bunch of psychology students.
0: <laughs> so many studies. Oh, so my God. Like so many psychology studies. So
1: many. So what this study did was they asked them about their experiences with a call of the void and other mental health symptoms and suicidal ideations. And what was found was that many students with and without a history of suicidal ideations reported experiencing this phenomenon, although it was more highly correlated with experiences of anxiety. So what they found was that um, they found a a closer correlation to those feelings, those experiences related to anxiety and not necessarily related to suicidal ideations, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It tended to be the case that those students who also reported having a generalized anxiety disorder or some other anxiety disorder were more likely to report having had that experience of feeling the sense of what would it be like if I jumped sort of thing. And this was the study in which only about 30% of their subjects did report that they had had such an experience. I don't know how ubiquitously that is felt among undergrads. I would have expected it to be much higher. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. given the current state of academia, yeah, you would think that that would be much higher. (laughs) Right. The results also did indicate that the curiosity about the urge to jump is in fact separate from suicidal ideation. It's not a curiosity about death. It's a curiosity about the jump itself or about the fall. And instead, this call of the void is something that a lot of people do experience that is utterly unrelated to any kind of desire to actually die or commit harm.
1: Yeah, which that's been my experience with it. I don't want to die. Yeah, I've never been like, This would be cool if I wasn't here. It's been more like, I wonder what that would feel like, or like, I wonder if I could survive that, (laughs) you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, That's exactly where I would put myself as well. Yeah.
1: And I think the researchers go on to actually suggest that it's something like that. Like some of the thought process behind that and some of the urge behind that is actually an urge to test the safety of a situation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Hames and her colleagues further suggested that what could be going on here is that this idea of the urge to want to jump or whatever, you know, urge to X, I guess, is actually an urge to test the safety of the situation and that they suggest that this is created by this delay in the rapidity at which we process the survival signal, which we process as really quickly a sort of an immediate reaction versus sort of a logical signal, which we process somewhat more slowly. The logical one is this isn't actually a dangerous situation. So let me just say a little bit more about that to make this more clear. It's not that you actually ever jump, but that you have this knee-jerk reaction into a dangerous situation where you pull yourself back and then your brain sort of retroactively, logically imposes on that action, it was safe, so why did I move away from it? It must be because I wanted to jump. That's sort of the idea that they're proposing here, is that people will have their immediate reaction. They'll realize that their immediate reaction was not really in response to an actual threat because there was nothing actually happening. And that instead, they are sort of post-hoc rationalizing that without realizing that they're post-hoc rationalizing it, so doing it sort of unconsciously. That's what the authors here are suggesting. Okay. They interpreted their results to mean that an urge to jump actually reflects an urge to live by more or less becoming acutely familiar with the danger posed by that situation.
1: I feel like that makes logical sense, right? Like you're exposing yourself to a situation or a possible scenario, and you're playing out all the different scenarios that come along with it, even if you've never experienced that.
0: Yeah, I think there is, I mean, for one thing, you can take any amount of results and talk around them any way that you kind of want to. And I think that they did a little bit of that here. But I also think that it does make some amount of intuitive sense, at least, that that could be what's going on is the sort of testing the waters sort of feel.
1: Yeah. But kind of like you mentioned before, you can talk around your results. There are a lot of things to pick apart to make the study less definitive. And I think one of those things is we can rationalize and we can say this makes sense, but the science behind it doesn't give us enough of that evidence to give us that definitive answer.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, very little else has actually been done to research this. That was the only published study that I found in a peer-reviewed source that looked at this phenomenon at all. There were lots of people who had written other pieces that were hypotheses and theories and speculations and reflecting on its existence in the general culture, but there really wasn't much else in the way of scientific research controlled experiments that sort of thing yeah and i think you can make the case this wasn't really a controlled experiment either
1: right exactly i mean i think the majority of publications in this realm about the call of the void probably come from hp lovecraft because his entire (laughs) body of works is just about the void
0: yeah that's fair (laughs) the call of cthulhu oh no thanks I wonder why they haven't actually made a Cthulhu movie yet, at least at the time that this is being recorded. I mean, have, have they? I don't think I've seen one. I don't know that they have. I don't know that the world is ready for that type of darkness. <laughs> I don't know. I look around and it feels like it probably is. <laughs> I think we're ripe for it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I'd be interested to... I And I, I've only read a little bit of H.P. Lovecraft. I've read part of the cthulhu story and some other ones and i'm i'm familiar with some of the lore and some of the monsters and whatnot i just i need to actually sit down and read it though i know my brother has a like complete works of hp lovecraft Mm -hmm. and i do think that you're right that there is some call of the void in there have you read much of his actual work i've read some
1: of his stuff i will say that if you're a fan of edgar Allan poe which we referenced earlier hp lovecraft makes edgar Allan poe look like dr seuss
0: Bold words. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'll
1: fired. lean. I'll lean hard into that. I will. <laughs>
0: okay, that's fine. That is the bridge you plan to stand on, I guess. <laughs> that's or, the hill of the expressions. That's the one, the hill to die on. <laughs> High place to do something on yeah. is what I was frame. I was squishing into a different frame. <laughs> Okay. There was another theory that I saw. There's a couple that I'll talk about from a cognitive neuroscientist, Adam Anderson, who instead suggested that this idea of the call of the void is more like gambling. That is... People feel compelled to do riskier things in an aversive situation because they want to avoid the negative outcomes by gambling against it. So, for example, if someone had a fear of heights, then jumping in the situation of heights would immediately confront that fear and no longer would you have that fear of heights necessarily, according to him, because... Well, (laughs) you're not going to have much of anything if you (laughs) successfully jump, so you will have avoided the outcome of the fear by acting on the other outcome of the jump, as I think what he was suggesting here. It was a a little convoluted, but that was my understanding of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, the way that's written reads like a risk-benefit analysis. Yeah. You know, like, this is the outcome for this, this is the outcome for this, I'm going to go ahead and weigh those options and make a decision based on that, kind of. Yeah,
0: sometimes... I get sort of what he might be alluding to here. And similar to what you were just saying is that there is this idea that we can build up the potential outcomes for something as being much worse than they are. And given the example of, is it worse for me to experience this fear than it is for me to actually act on this situation? And so then we can disproportionately attribute fear to the wrong sort of option, if you will, and actually act on the one that is more dangerous. Maybe I'm misinterpreting him. But that seems to be maybe what he was alluding to there.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe. It's hard to say. It's, it's hard to say. Like you said, it's, it's a little bit
0: convoluted. Well, and the other problem, too, is it's so hypothetical. It's based on a speculation about something that wasn't observed. So it's like, this is a thing that could be happening. Yeah. That could be a thing that's happening. Yeah. Sure. But it's,
1: it's, it's a little difficult to empirically test it.
0: Yeah. Uh, Another one that was written quite a while ago is the famous author Jean-Paul Sartre wrote that, quote, a moment of existentialist truth about the human freedom to choose to live or die, end quote, in reference to this idea of the sort of call of the void. And from my interpretation of this, he's seemingly suggesting that we are in those moments, we are seizing control of our fates by entertaining only the idea of making the ultimate decision to sort of end it. So there is some amount of satisfaction derived by taking control over a situation where it's sort of nature is trying to kill you and you're sort of saying well i'm not going to i'm going to i'm going to make the make the choice myself you can't make it for me
1: yeah 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 no thanks not today nature <laughs> yeah i think going back to kind of what's published about it and a little bit of the literature or the one bit of literature that's out there about it there's a lot to kind of derive from it right like you've got all this information you've got all this hypothesis and all this thought and all this kind of like you're extrapolating people are just running with it. There's not really a definitive thing. So what is actually going on? What do we think is actually happening here?
0: I mean, this is just extrapolating what we generally understand about psychology and how it works. But we'll start with the basic facts here. First, many psychologists from both inside and outside of the field of behaviorism and all along the spectrum of psychological fields have described how important the idea of survival is with respect to understanding some of humans' most basic motivations. This is reflected, for example, in Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. See your episode on that. In Freud's Drives, that's how he talks about motivations is our drives, these often unconscious pushes to one thing or another. And also in Skinner's Reinforcement Theory, and in many, many other places, there's this idea that Survival is very important. Obviously, this is influenced at least to some degree by Darwin, talking about the things, the kind of behaviors that we're likely to engage in have at least some foundation in understanding that they contribute to the overall survival and fitness of a species to its ecological niche. Okay.
1: I think that's important to recognize because we can go back and we can say that without this type of drive or instinct or motivation, whatever you want to call it, without this piece, species would not continue to thrive humans wouldn't be here without having this somewhere in their repertoire
0: yes exactly so one interpretation then is that there is something intrinsically motivating about cues that indicate safety and outcomes that would generally increase survival and of course there's plenty of counterexamples and it gets infinitely more complicated than that when you start introducing how much variability can come with language and culture, right? Right. But at the very basic level and very generally speaking, we are seeking to increase our likelihood of survival. And there are things that are just intrinsically valuable to us that contribute to our likelihood of survival.
1: Yeah. So let's uh, let's take an example here and we'll look at how we're motivated by food, right? I think this is probably a really easy, clear-cut example that we can start digging into. Okay. I like yeah. food. You like we food. We need food to survive. Yeah. So, however, people will eat to excess to the point where their survival is once again threatened. So they'll eat 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 to the point where now their lives are threatened as a result of this thing that they're motivated for and that they need. Right? Yeah. Nevertheless, food continues to taste good and hunger continues to feel aversive. And the basic instinct to want to eat at regular intervals and the type of food we normally like to eat, the survival instinct does not affect the immediate decision to eat, which is more powerfully influenced by the need to eat when the relevant cues are there, like hunger, availability, food, etc., etc., etc.
0: Yeah, and I'm just going to say this and use different words to say a similar thing. Basically, <laughs> what what we're saying here is that even when we've eaten to the point that our survival, our health, and our physical well-being are now being threatened by that behavior of eating, we still are going to keep eating because the drive to eat is just one that is intrinsically rewarding. The food tastes good. We're used to it. We eat it at regular intervals. That behavioral pattern is well-established. So we'll pursue the, the reaction to we must eat because that is the immediate experience, whereas the delayed outcome of I might die if I eat this is too far removed and too irrelevant to that immediate situation to have an influence that would override the immediacy of that and the availability of that food.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I can I can track with that.
0: Perfect. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that we said that in a way that was clear <laughs> and may, maybe... We accomplished that, I hope, yeah, fingers crossed, I think I think we did, I think people relate to food, okay, I think so too, yeah. And of course, people can also severely under-eat as well, and there's a lot to tackle in covering things like eating disorders that's a little beyond the scope of this current discussion and what we're trying to do with this particular topic. However, generally speaking, you could make the case that insufficiently consuming calories occurs when our language around eating alters the way we think about eating such that we either then have a reaction to it as if it were counter to our survival, that eating would be counter to our survival, or else, some other sense of aesthetic appearance becomes more valuable to our survival than actual eating does. Or it could be a combination of both of those things. So basically what I'm saying here is that one potential explanation or way of orienting to the problem of, well, how do we talk about under eating with respect to if psychology is motivated by basic survival? And again, I'm saying just generally that's the case our language and our culture can undercut that and they can either shift it so that our survival is hinged upon something other than those things or it can make it so that those things that would normally be contribute to our survival we start to think of them as being counterproductive toward our survival and not that they are but that we think of them that way
1: yeah so i mean generally though the idea is that we're motivated by things that keep us alive Yeah, Things that are intrinsically motivating, like food, water, sex, sleep, oxygen, we're generally motivated by those things. The majority of people are generally motivated by those things. And there's not a lot that usually gets in the way of that, except for in those other cases that come up, like you mentioned, like not eating enough or when aesthetic comes into play and stuff like that. But for the most part, we're motivated by those things.
0: Right. And so this whole diatribe we've been on here is really leading to another hypothesis, which is that finding oneself in a situation with a high potential for death means that escaping that situation is going to be inherently rewarding. This is building off this idea that survival and things associated with our survival have some kind of intrinsic value, some sort of pre-programmed, if you will, sense of it feels good to receive that or have that be the case. But we actually have to experience the risk of death in order to feel the payoff of escaping that death or that risk. So we might actually lean toward just a little bit toward that experience that is risky for death, just enough to feel the rush that we might get from pulling away. Not that we feel actually compelled to jump or or in any way compelled to die, but that we get some satisfaction out of feeling that reward of avoiding those cues that are associated with death, with dying and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, and that makes sense too. I mean, that speaks to like people who are daredevils and stuff. They probably get closer and closer to that and probably experience a different level.
0: I actually thought about bringing in stuff like people who do really dangerous activities, sort of those thrill seekers or another one, adrenaline junkies. I actually think that might be a little bit separate from this, from the call of the void phenomenon, especially given that the people who tend to experience this, according to that one study, also tend to have anxiety. But we are planning to cover adrenaline junkies at some point in the near future. So I'll speak to my own experience in these situations, which is not that I feel so much I want to like lean toward it and get a rush from that and and be able to pull back. I mean, there is some of that for sure, but it's actually more that for myself, I actually sort of imagine the scenario and sort of let it play out in my mind as if I were jumping off of that cliff or driving into a barrier or whatever that situation is. So rather than simply edging toward it to test it out, I more want to sort of, imagine or play it out what it would be like. And so for me, the most apt description I can think of for this is curiosity. Again, I have no desire to actually jump, just this really intense curiosity about this situation. And I want to build on that by saying I've also had the experience that this tends to occur in novel situations. And for me, at least, it tends to wear off fairly quickly. So I would guess that, again, at least for me, this might have actually something to do with exploring the novelty of the situation more than anything else. Like if I'm walking along a bridge that's fairly long, for example, I might have that immediate reaction of what would it be like to fall or to fly off of this thing or to jump off of it, whatever that experience might be. But as I go along, I kind of just stop thinking about that and, and start thinking about other things. And so that's that's kind of my experience with it. So what are your thoughts on this, Shane? Like, What's your experience with it? And, and what is your thought on what I just shared?
1: I think that mine's very similar. I think the part that you spoke to that resonates with me more is like exploring the novelty. Okay. Because it is about curiosity for me. And I think about situations that I've been in or situations that I've thought about. And it's been more like being able to... Kind of explore that situation, kind of look at all the scenarios, and look at it like, you know, you look at it black and white. If I jump off a building, I'm probably not going to survive. Then I kind of look at it and go, okay, so if I did want to jump off a building and I wanted to survive, how do I merge that in a way that is doable? And then I go back and I say, base jumping, of course. (laughs) Like, you know? (laughs) So I think that's where I have found myself as like looking at that novelty of the situation and problem solving how I I can get as close to the end result of that situation without actually coming into harm's way or risk of dying and still have that experience. So that's a lot of how I've experienced this is like kind of taking it and then turn it into like, well, if I want to jump off a bridge, how do I do that safely so that I can talk about how cool it was to jump off a bridge safely?
0: Yeah. And actually, as you were saying that it occurred to me that I don't really have the experience of thinking about what happens at the end. It's more like what happens while I'm falling. I'm thinking about the air rushing past me and the view changing and like getting really close, but I don't ever actually include in any of this pondering, if you will, what would happen when I actually reach my (laughs) final point, (laughs) which is a critical piece of that experience. I, I think if you were to actually have the unfortunate experience to have fallen, that there is a final stopping.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's funny too, is like now that we're kind of like unpacking this a little bit, I've also thought about situations that literally I would have no control over and what that would be like. So how would I respond if I got hit by lightning? Wow. I've thought about that. Well, cause my mom was hit by lightning one time. Yikes. And so I think about that and I'm kind of like, what is that like? What would that be like to survive that? And what would my superpowers be when I got them? <laughs> so like, I mean, and I, and sometimes I go, I do that that piece but i also think about like well i wonder what life would be like having experienced that and and kind of walking away from it how would i be a different person as a result of that
0: hmm. that's interesting i haven't had a lot of that but i have had the experience for some reason of imagining what it would be like to be an amputee of thinking about what if i just didn't have this limb anymore you know how how different would it be and i do this sometimes intentionally when i'm trying to be do the sort of that perspective taking of people who have had that, like I'll try to imagine what would it be like if I lost my vision or my vision was so severely impacted that i basically had lost my vision. What would it be like if I couldn't hear anymore and I couldn't listen to music and, and things like that. And just, you know, just speculating on that so that I try and put myself in the shoes of those people and really feel, you know, I obviously can't feel what they feel, but try and understand how, important that is to them
1: yeah absolutely i mean that perspective taking is pretty important i think so
0: yeah i got a little off track there but anyway i don't have anything else that was about everything i could find on this topic it i was expecting it to be quite a bit larger than it was there are some other theories that we didn't really touch on that we could have explored a bit more it was just there's a lot of stuff out there and so i just kind of grabbed the main highlights to throw in here because We could just be speculating, unpacking these things all day. You know, I think that one of the major problems with a lot of the theories that have been proposed is they're just not, they're not testable and they're not based on anything. And so it's like, how would we ever know if it was, you know, something that is this totally speculative idea if we don't actually test it? You know, we literally just can go, well, this just kind of makes sense. And that's a fine place to begin. It just It makes it really difficult to have a lot of definitive answers to.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think this is a topic worth exploring more, you know, and really digging into and kind of seeing like what that phenomenon is all about. I just don't know that we have enough to say about it other than kind of what we think and just give a little bit of an overview of what's out there outside of H.P. Lovecraft.
0: (laughs) Yeah. H.P. Lovecraft is a good example. So, okay, well, let's go ahead and do some take home points. These are the main things I think are useful to walk away with from this episode. (laughs)
1: take up. <laughs> so I think the first thing is you're not alone if you have this experience. A lot of people have this experience and report feeling the urge to jump or related ideas. Generally, those people that report it, I think, probably have the same experience that you have. It's kind of like it peters off after a certain point. It's not super pervasive.
0: And it's more about curiosity than anything else and it's also not necessarily actually it specifically is not really about death that seems to be related and again i want to make the point that if you are having suicidal ideations thoughts or struggling with any of those things please reach out for help at any of the resources we listed at the front of this episode yeah
1: or any local resources that you're aware of for sure i mean anything that will help you get through that please reach out to that
0: yeah Absolutely.
1: Another point too just to kind of take home from this is there's very little research that's actually been done on this and so our understanding is pretty poor. This is one of those phenomena that that people speak to that it is theorized but not really very salient at all.
0: Yeah. It does suggest that for most people if not everyone who experiences this particular phenomenon, it actually represents a desire to live. I mean, that's something that was proposed and does kind of make sense in a way. Again, that's sort of that logical intuitiveness that that's what's going on. So if you're worried about the fact that you have had this thought, it doesn't mean that you are actually, if you're not actually thinking of harming yourself, this does not mean that that's something that's like this latent urge inside you that you need to be concerned about. I mean, if you are concerned, again, like go seek professional help. But a lot of people do have this experience and they don't actually have any, any desire whatsoever to come to harm. And so there does seem to be this correlation with this idea that it reflects a motivation to live, if that makes sense. Yeah.
1: I mean, and I could see that too, because you're kind of testing the boundaries of what's safe and what's not.
0: Yeah, precisely. All right. So in a nutshell, just to break down those theories, the theory suggests that A, It is actually a post hoc rationalization of why we flinch from a safe situation that has a dangerous element. That was that study. B. It is gambling with the idea that the other alternative is worse, and so that would be the better option. C. It is our desire to exercise control and sort of feel alive by having that control, I guess. D. It is a compulsive drive to return to an inanimate state, from Freud. Or, E, that it is intrinsically rewarding to test the boundaries of safety by identifying and subsequently avoiding real danger. So those are sort of the main theories that we talked about here. That's pretty much all I've got. Do you have anything else on this one, Shane? I
1: think that's a good place to wrap it up because I don't know that there is really anything else to add.
0: Well, if you have any other resources on the Call of the Void and would like to tell us, please reach out to us. If you've had an experience with this you'd like to share, we'd love to tell your story on here or just read about it. If you don't want us to share it, just let us know if you decide to send us that one. You can reach us, of course, at info at www.dwwdpodcast.com and at podcast on all the other social media platforms. You can ask your smart speaker to play Why We Do What We Do, and it should do that thing for you. And I've got no more rhymes for that, but I tried. <laughs> so close. We were almost there. And then, of course, if you like this episode, please share it with someone that you know, and uh, you know, hashtag Why We Do What We Do podcast or something like that on social media. Tweet to us. Send us an Instagram thing to reach shane i check a lot of the email and then of course you can join us on patreon we have a discord server that i have up and running and i can check and see who's talking about what and had some cool conversation with some of our patrons so anyway that's all i've got for today thank you so much for listening and thanks for recording with me today shane
1: yeah thank you for having me this
0: was a fun one all right that is all we've got abraham out all right, see ya
2: you've been listening to why we do what we do why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD WWD podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes